0: How many times a day do you find yourself hoping for a do-over, a fresh start? Imagine if your future, your security, your family, your livelihood depended on it. The opportunity to not just do good work, but to get back to work. Dave's Killer Bread believes your past shouldn't be what holds you back. Dave's Killer Bread believes in second chance employment. It's the purpose behind every loaf they make. Learn more at daveskillerbread.com
1: slash second chances.
0: Tonight on 60 Minutes Presents, Preserving the Past. The $540 million National Museum of African American History and Culture is rising on the National Mall. Its complexion rendered in shades of bronze, a building of color against history's white marble.
1: This is not the museum of tragedy. It is not the museum of difficult moments. It is the museum of that says, here is a balanced history of America that allows us to cry and smile.
2: Italy is home to two thirds of the world's cultural treasures. Trouble is, the country's too broke to keep its historic ruins, churches and monuments from crumbling to dust. But now, some of its most treasured and endangered landmarks are being saved, not by the government, but by a more respected Italian institution. The fashion business. There is a very famous Kennedy speech, no? What is possible
1: for us to do for our country? We need to do now.
3: When Pope Benedict XVI came to the Sagrada Familia, he consecrated the church as a basilica. Not since 1883, when it was first envisioned by Antony Gaudi, had it been seen in all its glory.
4: He wanted to write the history of the whole of the Catholic faith in one building. I mean, how crazy and how extraordinary and how ambitious that idea is.
5: a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it
0: good evening and welcome to 60 minutes presents i'm scott pelly tonight preserving the past we'll explore three memorable buildings where architecture is honored and history is kept alive we're going to begin in washington with a museum that has yet to open its doors 400 years have passed since america's original sin and still riots are ignited in the friction between race and justice as this debate continues the smithsonian is completing a monumental project the 540 million dollar national museum of african-american history and culture the idea was authorized by an act of congress which called it quote a tribute to the Negroes' contribution to the achievements of America. The words are jarring because the act was written in 1929. As we first told you last spring, building this museum has been a long struggle, just like the story it hopes to tell. Beside the monument to Washington, a slaveholding president, The museum was breaking free of the ground last year on the mall's last five acres. Eight decades after Congress framed a museum on paper, then failed to fund it, the dream is being written now in steel and stone. Ten floors, five above ground, five below. Its complexion rendered in shades of bronze. A building of color against history's white marble. You've been at this nine years now. It's a big job.
1: (laughs) Well, as I tell people, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I have the best job in America. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. This is a Romare Bearden from the 1950s. Sleepless nights are all in
0: a day's work for the museum's founding director, Lonnie Bunch, a scholar of the 19th century.
1: Clearly, this ought to be one of those moments where people are going to sort of reflect, pause. What does it mean once we open? What does it mean in terms of development opportunities? In 2003, President Bush signed the law creating the museum.
0: Congress put up 270 million, and Bunch has raised most of another 270.
1: I knew that this is where this museum would have to be, that this is America's front lawn, and this is the place where people come to learn what it means to be an American, and this museum needs to be there.
0: So we're on the ground floor. This is where the visitors will come in. This will be their first experience in the museum. So what's going to be here?
1: They will walk in either from the mall or from Constitution Avenue, and they will run into amazing pieces of African-American art.
0: When all of this is finally complete, what will America
1: have? America will have a place that allows them to remember. To remember how much we as a country have been improved, changed, challenged, and made better by the African American experience. They'll have a place that they can call home, but they'll also have a place that will make them change.
0: But even this place is only space until you fill it.
6: Oh my goodness. Now did somebody already look at some of these things? No.
0: Eight years ago, the Smithsonian began rummaging the attics and basements of America.
3: This may have marked a milestone in his life, and what we don't know is what but that But at least was. it gives me something that I can
5: investigate.
0: 3,000 people brought their family history to 16 Smithsonian events across the country.
5: And this is an early free black family yes. based out of Baltimore? Yes.
0: It sounds like Antiques Roadshow.
5: It is, it is like, like Antiques that. Roadshow. Mm-hmm.
0: Mary Elliott and Nancy Burkaw are curators.
5: We have experts from across the museum field, experts in conservation, experts who understand about paper, about metals, about, you name it, fabrics, textiles. And they come in and they review objects for the public.
2: The coating
6: on
5: this is in pretty good condition. Some of that looks like it's dried out a little bit. And don't 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 put it near the air conditioning unit because that'll dry it out too
0: much. How do we convince someone to give up? a priceless family heirloom. Do you
7: know what? Our museum pitches itself. All we have to do is tell the absolute honest truth. People have been waiting for us. People in America have been waiting for this moment. And so, literally, they just hand us things.
5: And we're very excited, like you are.
0: Thousands of relics were examined, but only 25 will be in the collection. This is one of them.
1: This was actually a connection we made with the family. Mr. Jesse Burke was an enslaved man, and he was charged with playing this violin and entertaining the slaveholder and his guests.
0: This is the Smithsonian's warehouse in Maryland where the story is being written, and these are a few of the lines. Received by Grigsby E. Thomas, the sum of $350 in full payment for a Negro boy by the name of Jim about 10 years old, this 31st day of December, 1835. Jim would have been familiar with these shackles dating before 1860, bondage that might have been broken if the keeper of this Bible had succeeded in his bloody rebellion. Nat Turner had said that God commanded him to break the chains. His Bible was taken away before his execution. Paul Gardulo is a leader of the curating
7: team. I think many of us who know the story of slavery know about Nat Turner, know about Nat Turner from the perspective of perhaps a freedom fighter, perhaps a murderer. Well, we know this is a religious person. We know this is a person who can read. And when you begin with that and those ideas, suddenly... The person of Nat Turner and your understandings of Nat Turner take on a whole new light. And I look to do that again and again. Ways that we can see well-worn stories, stories we think we know, in a new light.
0: You may think you know the story of a boy murdered for whistling at a white woman until you're confronted with his casket.
1: The story of Emmett Till is a crucially important story in terms of what it tells us both about sort of reinvigorating the civil rights movement, but also it's a story of his mother, Mamie Mobley, who was really one of the most powerful people who said that her son's murder should not be in vain, that it should help to transform America.
0: No one was punished for the murder of Emmett Till. His body was exhumed in a later investigation, and the original casket was neglected.
1: But then the question was, would we ever display it? Should we ever display it? And I wrestled a lot with it, but then I realized I kept hearing Mamie Mobley in my, in my head, and she said, I opened this casket to change the world, to make the world confront the dangers, the power, the ugliness of race in America.
0: A lot of the things that you intend to put on display are going to be hard to look at
1: What I'm trying to do is find the right tension between moments of sadness and moments of resilience.
0: One resilient moment came out of the blue. Air Force Captain Matt Kwai and his wife, Tina, rebuilt an old crop duster and, in curiosity, they sent the serial number to an Air Force historian. And he said, are you sitting down? Because I have some news for you turned out the 1944 Stearman had trained America's first black squadrons, the Tuskegee Airmen, who flew to fame in World War II.
5: I had never really known much about the Tuskegee Airmen. I'd seen the P-51 plane, but I'd never really truly understood what it meant. Take your time.
0: Before donating the plane, known as a PT-13, the Kwai's carried the last of the Airmen back to the air. And it was just great to sit back in the back seat and look at this real Tuskegee Airman in a real Tuskegee Airplane. It was just magical.
2: The greatest thrill in my life was sitting in the seat where you are and watching the ground drop off a it. The PT-13 was the baby we used to learn how to fly.
0: The Smithsonian collected the thoughts of Lieutenant Colonel Leo Gray in 2010. They said
2: we couldn't fly, but we had the best record of any fighter group in the 15th Air Force and probably in the Air Force itself. We stayed with our bombers, we brought them home as best we could, and
0: we proved that we could fly. Time is the enemy of history. So Smithsonian conservationists have been working for years restoring America's heritage, from textiles, to trains. This 1920 rail car had two sections, white and colored. The same number of seats, but colored was compressed in half the space. Physical, touchable Jim Crow confinement, just like the guard tower from the prison in Angola, Louisiana, notorious for cruelty. It's about 21 feet tall. This is cast concrete, so it's an enormous object. From monumental to minuscule, Carlos Bustamante is the project manager building a place for 33,000 moments in time. So when you have the rail car, the rail car pieces, the guard tower and all the support equipment, we had a convoy of about 12 semi-trucks traveling down the road across six states to get here. It took them about three days. How do you get those things into this building? So we set up two very, very large cranes. These cranes are, are rare. There's not a lot of them this size. And we picked up these two objects and basically brought them over the site and lowered them down about 60 feet below grade. The answer is you don't move these objects into the building. You put these objects in place and you build the building around them. Exactly. There's no other way.
7: Oftentimes, what I'm drawn to are some of the smaller things, shards of glass that were picked up after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's finding the balance between the big and the small Scott that makes this work a challenge and so wonderful.
0: What is something that you desperately want and have (laughs) not been able to find?
7: I want Willie Mays' mitt.
0: which would be quite a catch to display along with Louis Armstrong's horn and Chuck Berry's horn behind the chrome of his 73 Cadillac. There's the welcome of Minton's Playhouse, which resonated to Miles, Monk, and Dizzy. Ali's headgear, pristine condition. And this fireman's headgear, a revolutionary invention in 1914 by mechanical genius Garrett Morgan. Do you think the country's ready for this now?
1: I don't think America's ever ready to have the conversation around race, based on what we see around the landscape, whether it's Ferguson or other places, that people are really ready to shine the light on all the dark corners of the American experience. But I hope this museum will help in a small way to do that.
0: This is not the American Museum of Slavery.
1: This is not the museum of tragedy. It is not the museum of difficult moments. It is the museum that says, here is a balanced history of America that allows us to cry and smile.
0: On September 24th, America's first black president will cut the ribbon to the Smithsonian's first National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C.
5: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: See other artifacts, including what Marian Anderson wore at the Lincoln Memorial and a freed slaves copy of the Emancipation Proclamation at 60minutesovertime.com. It's estimated that Italy is home to two-thirds of the world's cultural treasures, Trouble is, the country's too broke to keep its historic ruins, churches, and monuments from crumbling to dust. Italy is up to its neck in debt. Taxes go unpaid. Corruption in an overstuffed bureaucracy is rife. But now, some of its most treasured and endangered landmarks are being saved, not by the government, but by a more respectable Italian institution, the fashion business. As Morley Safer reported in 2014, it stepped in to rescue some of Italy's most iconic sites, among them the very symbol of its rich, violent, and inventive history, the Colosseum in Rome.
2: With its stunning, timeless sites, it's justifiably called the Eternal City, a holy place to billions, a vast landscape of the sacred and profane an architectural delight, especially when viewed at sunset. And smack in the middle is the Colosseum, the greatest surviving wonder of the ancient world, a memorial to the rise, decline, and fall of imperial Rome, a place truly colossal.
5: We think it seats about fifty thousand people, but this number depends on how wide you think the Roman behind was. If you think <laughs> that they had big behinds, then you calculate less, small behinds, you calculate more. <laughs> this is the Temple of Venus in Rome.
2: Backsides aside, Professor, Rome Professor Kimberly Bose the, uh, the is the, the director of, of the American history. Academy in Rome and an expert on ancient Mediterranean history, who knows every inch of the Colosseum. She's taking us to the very top level, far above where tourists tread, for a sight that over the centuries very few people have seen firsthand.
5: The view is terrifying. (laughs) The view is extraordinary. Look at this. This is where the poor people sat. You really get the scale of this building here, though. Look how big this is. Look how big this is. People are ants.
2: The place was built by the hands of slaves in just 10 years finished a mere half century after the crucifixion. The performers here were gladiators, wild animals, even comedians. I gather that this place was the entertainment center, the Broadway of its day, (laughs) yes?
5: In a way, the whole point is to produce marvels, to produce a spectacle that would have amazed the audience. The people with the most power, the senators, are down at the bottom. And the people with the least power, the slaves and the women, are up at the top. Women? Women. You don't want women to get too close to gladiators. You have to keep them separate, because your greatest fear, you have two fears if you're a Roman man. One is that your slave is going to kill you one day in your bed. And your second fear is that your wife is going to run off with a slave, like a gladiator. This is what everyone's afraid of, so you got to put the women up on the top.
2: So even though the gladiators were slaves, they were kind of the movie stars of their day. They were. And we turn to Hollywood for an idea of how it all might have looked.
5: There's a moment in Gladiator where Russell Crowe walks out right where we are.
2: Professor Bowes gives the filmmakers high marks. ...for the historical accuracy of their computer recreation of the Colosseum.
5: The whole drama is really the reenactment of Roman conquest, the continual expansion of the empire.
2: Backstage was actually underground, the basement. Until recently, this was just filled with dirt. A labyrinth of corridors, dungeons for slaves, cages for animals, all brought from the far reaches of the empire. And wooden elevators, raised by ropes and pulleys, leading to trap doors in the stage.
5: There's a wonderful scene in Gladiator where the tiger pops out of the floor. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that would have been used to wow the audience.
2: Since the 18th century, the Roman Catholic Church has venerated the Colosseum as a symbol of the early Christian martyrs who were put to death for the beliefs. Professor Bose tells visitors there were indeed early Christians quietly executed elsewhere in Rome. But as for the Colosseum...
5: We have not one piece of evidence that any Christians were ever killed in this building. Not one. There are, I think, really interesting reasons for this. If you take a group of people who by all accounts are extraordinarily brave in the face of certain death and you put them in this space and put them on display, who is everyone going to cheer for? They're going to cheer for the Christians, right? Because they show such extraordinary bravery. This is not a smart thing to do politically. So I'm in the famous Coliseum.
2: Six million tourists a year visit here, snapping selfies and posing with rented gladiators who pass the time with cigarettes and cell phones. The place has survived fires and earthquakes over the centuries. Now there's a new crisis finding the money to manage the crowds and keep up with basic maintenance. The director of the Colosseum is Rosella Rea. The money
5: isn't there. There's very little, totally inadequate funding, only 5% of what we need.
2: Too little money, and from the Italian parliament, too much red tape. A lot of people say the bureaucracy is so top-heavy. That's the reason why things don't get done.
7: Bureaucracy
5: is not just heavy, it is extremely heavy, and we are the first victims. Bureaucracy for us is a killer.
2: But that scaffolding you saw earlier is a sign that help is on the way. The Colosseum is getting a badly needed facelift with money from an unlikely source. To prevent further ruin, a benefactor is spending an arm and a leg, $35 million, on a place where 2,000 years ago Gladiators and slaves literally lost arms, legs, and lives, and all in the name of show business. The benefactor is Diego Della Valle, a prominent Italian businessman who knows a lot about the business of showing. Della Valle is CEO of Todd's, the luxury leather goods company. Crafting stylish shoes and bags has long been an Italian specialty. Having made his bundle, Della Valle decided to give some back to the state. Why spend so much of your own money, millions upon millions, to fix this wreck? (laughs) Why not? Well, uh, I am Italian. I am very
1: proud to be Italian. And there is a very famous Kennedy speech, no?
2: It's the moment that what is possible for us to do for our country we need to do now. The shoes that made Della Valle's fortune are assembled the old-fashioned way, by hand, stitch by stitch. And the work he's funding at the Coliseum is also about as low-tech as it gets. It's being cleaned literally inch by inch to get rid of centuries of caked-on dust, grime, air, and auto pollution. The stone is travertine, a kind of limestone. No chemicals allowed only purified water and elbow grease. Days, weeks, months, years on end of scrubbing, built by hand, saved by hand. How long is it going to take? The Colosseum? Yeah. I think three years from now. And what will it look like, do you think, when they're finished? I am very curious. To get some idea, we were shown a few sections that have been completely cleaned. 2,000 years old, and looking almost brand new. And in the world of high style, it's become fashionable to follow Della Valle's example. An entire parade of fashionistas are bankrolling similar worthy causes. The Fendi Fashion House donated $3.5 million for some new plumbing for a familiar waterworks. It's the Trevi Fountain.
7: Marcello! Here.
2: Where 54 years ago, Marcello Mastroianni and Anita Eckberg went waiting yeah. in Fellini's La Dolce Vita, The sweet Life, forever linking Rome and romance. This
6: movie helped a lot to build really this powerful image of the Trevi Fountain. Cinema has a, a big power.
2: Sylvia Fendi's grandfather started the business 90 years ago. And as we spoke, huge crowds had a last chance to throw in a coin before the closing of the site for repairs.
6: It means that you will be in good health to come in order to come back. So it's very important for us. This country gave us a lot. And so it's nice at a point to to give back something.
2: Elsewhere in Rome... The Bulgari fashion house is paying to clean and repair the Spanish steps, where tourists stop to rest their feet. A Japanese fashion company with ties to Italy is restoring the Pyramid of Cestius, built to honor a noble Roman two decades before the birth of Christ and after the Roman conquest of Egypt. And in Venice, the 400-year-old Rialto Bridge over the Grand Canal will be cleaned and strengthened thanks to $7 million from this man, Renzo Rosso. Is the government too poor, too broke to maintain its treasures? No, I think we have to face with the reality. The reality is that uh, they don't have money. Rosso is a farmer's son, a self-made man known as the jeans genius, as in diesel jeans. He built the brand from the ground up, expanding into other businesses and becoming a billionaire several times over. And I want uh, more shorts. His sleek headquarters rival anything in Silicon Valley, what with the espresso bars and daycare, where kids learn the international language of business. Clap out. Clap in. But the fashion industry is a rare bright spot in the stagnant Italian economy. And these workers are the lucky ones. Elsewhere, fully half the country's young adults are unemployed. There's corruption, public and private, and widespread tax evasion. The Italian people are tired of this corruption because we have too many people that are still, too many people that put the money in his pocket. We have 40 percent of people doesn't pay tax. Can you imagine? 40 percent is unbelievable. Pope Francis talks about the problem in scathing terms, saying corrupt politicians, businessmen, and priests are everywhere. In And the country's new young prime minister, Matteo Renzi, has declared war on the political establishment, saying the whole system should be scrapped. Diego Della Valle agrees. I think it's possible now
1: to, to, to open a new way, the old point of view, was without any sense, I opened the new point of view. I push for the new point of view.
2: But as Dele Valley's scrubbers continue their work, it's worth noting that his generous offer to restore the country's greatest monument was mired in a bureaucratic mud for nearly three years before work could begin.
5: This is the real challenge that Italy has. This is why sites are closed and monuments are falling down. The bureaucracy will have to change in order to actually make it possible for someone to come and say, here, do you want $25 million? Without the bureaucracy saying, well, I don't know, I'll have to think about it.
2: But time is a way of standing still for Italians. Past glories are always present. Food remains superb, and the noble wines still lubricate the conversation. On the surface, it's still La Dolce Vita, the sweet life. As for the future, that's somebody else's problem.
5: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Before stepping down as Pope, Benedict XVI carried out thousands of official duties over eight years, but only once did he travel outside Rome to bestow the Vatican's highest honor on a church, transforming it into a basilica, a sacred place forever. Tonight, we're going to take you to that extraordinary church. It's called the Sagrada Familia, and if you've ever been to Barcelona, Spain, you couldn't have missed it. It may be one of the most spectacular buildings ever constructed by man. The vision of the genius Spanish architect Antony Gaudi, known as God's architect, who died almost a century ago. It's been under construction for 130 years and it's still not finished. Why would a church take so long to build? Because as Lara Logan first reported in 2013, Gaudi's design was as complicated as it was advanced. Today, the Sagrada Familia has become the longest-running architectural project on Earth.
3: When Pope Benedict came to the Sagrada Familia, it was the first time Mass had ever been held here. In an ancient tradition as old as the Catholic Church, he consecrated the Sagrada Familia as a basilica. Not since 1883, when it was envisioned by Antony Gaudi, had it been seen in all its glory. 800 voices filled the air, one of the largest choirs in the world. Close to 7,000 people gathered, celebrating a moment that had taken 128 years to arrive. While the inside is mostly finished, outside there's still much to be done. You can see the spires and construction cranes for miles. Watch as this picture moves in from above. Those tiny figures below are people dwarfed by the massive façade rising from the main entrance of the church. Antony Gaudi was profoundly devout, and this was his way to make amends to God for the sins of the modern world.
4: I mean, he wanted to write the history of the whole of the Catholic faith in one building. I mean, how crazy and how extraordinary and how ambitious and how, in a sense, megalomaniac uh, that idea is.
3: Geis van Hensbergen immersed himself in Anthony Gaudi's life for 10 years and wrote what's considered the definitive biography. He took us to see the nativity facade, the only part built while Gaudi was alive.
4: It's the Bible written in stone.
3: So every single little thing that you look at there, every detail symbolizes something real?
4: Yeah. And that was the idea that we together would spend days here, me teaching you, if I was the priest, Mm -hmm. what the story was and what the symbolism was, and once you get inside, is a wonderful kind of spiritual boost. The
3: ceiling is a striking display of Gaudi's engineering genius. He wanted the interior of his church to have the feel of a forest, because that's where he believed man could feel closest to God. And when you look upwards, you can see Gaudi's columns branching out like trees.
4: Trees are actually buildings, he said. It knows where to throw out a branch. And if you look at the Sagrada Familia today, that's exactly what happens with those bizarre, eccentric... They look bizarre and eccentric, but the engineering beneath it is absolutely exceptional.
3: Van Hansbergen pointed out that as you move towards the altar, the columns are made from stronger and stronger stone. Gaudi chose red porphyry from Iran for the ones that bear the heaviest load because it's among the strongest in the world. If you had to define sort of the one thing that distinguished Gaudi as an architect, what would
4: it be? The capacity to see space in a totally different way, to make space explode to see a building as a sculpture rather than just as a place to live in or a roof over your head. He's someone who reinvented the language of architecture, which no other architect has ever managed to do.
3: How many years ahead of his time was he?
4: He was a century ahead. He was a century ahead.
3: Gaudi knew the Sagrada Familia would not be completed in his lifetime, so he spent years building these elaborate plaster models. This one is of the church's ceiling. They would have to act as a guide for future generations of architects to follow his complicated design. And he knew that without them, it would never be finished the way he intended. I am very old, but... You're very this next old, next one, Yes. But? 87. Gaudi's legacy has been in the hands of this man's family for more than 80 years. Geordie Bennett came here for the first time in 1932, when he was just seven years old. Do you remember what this was like when you first came here? (laughs) Yes. Was it nothing like this? Nothing
6: of this. Only this facade, the walls, and other facade.
3: This was nothing. For years, the Sagrada Familia was little more than a ruin, a pile of rubble and open sky. And it may have stayed that way were it not for this one family. This is Geordie Bennett's father, who was one of the lead architects here for more than 40 years. Geordie followed him as chief architect for almost three decades. And his daughter, Mariona, is an architect here today. Together, they've spent more time working on this church than Gaudi himself. The devotion to Gaudi runs deep here. Japanese sculptor, Etsuro Soto, has spent 35 years in this church. And this is where he expects to be for the rest of his life, sculpting the figures that adorn Gaudi's final masterpiece, consumed by the man and his vision.
6: Gaudi teaches me and helps me solve problems in my work. For me, he's not dead.
3: Why did you convert to Catholicism? You became a Catholic. I
6: was a Buddhist, but after working here, I realized I couldn't do my job without knowing Gaudi. And to know him, you have to be in the place he was, and that was a world of faith.
3: Gaudi's deep faith is the reason he became known as God's architect. This is one of the few photographs ever taken of him. He was 31 when he started working on the Sagrada Familia, and over the next 43 years, it became an obsession.
4: He looked like a homeless person. His trousers were held up with string. His clothes were kind of frayed. And Because all he was interested in was the Sagrada Familia. I mean, that was every waking hour, to the point at the end of his life, actually, where he was sleeping on site.
3: Gaudi died suddenly at this intersection in 1926 when he was hit by a tram the driver pushed him aside, mistaking the beloved architect for a tramp.
4: The photos show you these people kind of bereft of their builder, the builder of God.
3: After his death, the builder of God's plaster models continued to guide construction for the next 10 years, until 1936, when the Spanish Civil War broke out. Anarchists attacked the Sagrada Familia. This photo captures smoke billowing from its side. All those models Gaudi had spent years building were smashed to pieces. Wow, these are all the original pieces that were picked up
6: yep. from his studio. Yep. And they've been sort of painstakingly identified.
3: These shattered fragments were rescued from the rubble and ashes by Geordie Burnett's father and a team of architects. There are thousands of them, locked away inside this room in the Sagrada Familia. They are the structural DNA of Gaudi's church.
6: They are absolutely the link. Not a vague link, not a a source of evidence, it's the source of evidence.
3: New Zealander Mark Burry was studying architecture at Cambridge University in England when he first came to the Sagrada Familia on a backpacking trip in 1977. He had come at just the right moment. The architects were stuck. The second facade had just been completed, and they were ready to take on the main body of the church. But no one could figure out how to build it as Gaudi intended. What were you going to do that they couldn't do?
6: My task was to actually reverse engineer the models, if you like
3: reverse-engineer them so we could understand how Gaudi's models were supposed to fit together.
6: This is the model maker's workshop.
3: Almost like the pieces of a complex puzzle. He told us Gaudi's design was so advanced there was nothing like it in the language of architecture at the time. In the end, he turned to the most sophisticated aeronautical design software available.
6: We had to look to other professions who've actually tackled the complexities of the Sagrada Familia, which are basically complex shapes and surfaces. So that's the vehicle industry, the car designers, the ship designers, the plane designers. They've been grappling for decades with the very same issues that Gaudi was putting up as architectural um, challenges.
3: So you're using the most up-to-date aeronautical engineering software to complete something that he conceived of in the late 1800s? Absolutely. Absolutely. After 34 years, Mark Burry is now one of the lead architects. He took us up to their construction site in the sky, way above the city. From up here, you can see all the way to the Mediterranean. How did they build these towers 130 years ago? Um, They built them by hand. Today, massive cranes swing heavy equipment and materials across the sky constructing the Sagrada Familia precisely as Gaudi envisioned. Burry says they still rely on Gaudi's models to guide them, nearly a hundred years later.
6: What's extraordinary is because of the, the system that Gaudi put in place using these particular geometries, it all fits within fractions of an inch.
3: The spot where we're standing is where they're building Gaudi's central tower. At 566 feet, it will make this the tallest church on earth. Gaudi designed it to be three feet shorter than the tallest surrounding mountain in deference to God. When you finish this tower, it's gonna be double where we are right now. We're
6: gonna get uh, this view amplified by two.
3: Mark Burry says it will take at least another 13 years to finish the Sagrada Familia, which is paid for entirely by donations to the church. During the Pope's visit, Geordie Bennett was called on to represent the three generations of architects, engineers and sculptors who have brought Gaudi's vision this far. Do you think you will see this complete?
2: (laughs) This is very difficult to answer. My age is a big age, but it is possible
3: Do you have any doubt in your mind that this will be finished one day? Oh yes, I I
7: believe.
0: I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.